Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. It's 10 years this week since Paul Hunter passed away at the tragically young age of just 27. Paul was much loved by everyone in the snooker world, including his fellow players and many millions of fans around the world. I've been talking to my fellow snooker journalist Phil Yates about Paul's career and what made him so special. Well, my first memory of Paul Hunter is, is very clear because I started working in snooker for the WPBSA when I was very young as a junior press officer. And I went to the Welsh Open 1998, and he was the first player I interviewed. He'd beaten somebody, and Bruce, who was the uh, media relations manager, said, why don't you do a little interview with him? And it was really, in a way, just experience for me. And what was interesting, looking back, was how shy he was. You know, you look at Paul later on in his life and career, and he was so open and gregarious, but it was all new to him then, because that was the first tournament where he'd done really well. And he'd never really sort of faced the media that much before, and it was, it was hard work, I'll be honest, it was. There's a parallel now. He wasn't media savvy at the start. Definitely not. I remember that 98 Welsh Open, and obviously he did so well. It was very important for us to speak to him on multiple occasions. It was like getting blood from a stone. It was a little bit like the golfer at the moment, Andrew Beef Johnston, when he started out. He was the same, very shy, but now he's, he's wonderful with the media. I think it's just a, a developmental process, and obviously Paul became... Uh, one of the most loved players for the press because he gave us so much and he was successful. He got all the razzmatazz and the, the glamour around him. He was the perfect package. Yeah, and never put on airs. You know, when he spoke, he spoke as himself. He wasn't sort of contriving it to, to sound in a particular way. But let's go back to the, the start of his career. I mean, obviously he grew up in a very strong area for snooker in, in Leeds, Northern Snooker Centre, still a great uh, snooker club to this day. And when he was young, he, he was sort of his talent was, was spotted. He practiced a lot with Joe Johnson, our Eurosport colleague. He helped him in his early career. But there were signs early on as a junior that he was going to come through. And I guess he was in the sort of second wave. Him and Matthew Stevens and, and Graham Dot in the second wave behind Ronnie and John Higgins and Mark Williams in, in that sort of open era. Yes, I first uh, realised he was going to be something pretty good when he won the English doubles title um, at the age of fourteen, I believe. Now. Anyone who's played doubles knows that one of the things you need isn't just skill, but also patience. And it clearly showed to me that he wasn't just a really good player, but he was also a good match player. 
and that certainly came through in uh, later years when he turned professional. I wouldn't say he was quite a prodigy like Ronnie O'Sullivan or maybe even Stephen Hendry, but he was on the radar. Took him a couple of seasons as a professional to really hit the heights, but when he did, he was uh, a tremendous talent. Turned pro at 16, and that meant in those days you went to the Norbreck Castle Hotel in Blackpool, that was the qualifying venue, and uh, he was obviously very young and quite impressionable, and he got he got done for streaking, didn't he, one time, d- d- down the mile, it was just sort of high jinks, but, that, but that's kind of, I think he was sort of led astray by some of the older pros. Well, I can only assume if he was streaking down that promenade, it was in the <laughs> summer qualifiers rather than the winter ones, because that could have had a, a long-term effect. It was very cold up there in January, I can tell you. There is a school of thought which has emerged in, in later years that actually, and this is typical Paul Hunter if it's true, that he was taking the rap for someone else. Mm. He was punished for what someone else did, but he didn't want to grass on them. Now, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Mm. Well, he made pretty rapid progress. Semi-finals of the Welsh Open at just 17, you know, and, and that, that is impressive. But then as we'll go to that Welsh Open 98 because that was his, his big breakthrough in terms of a, a big ranking event. You know, he beat a succession of top 16 players, Steve Davis, Nigel Bond, Alan McManus, Peter Ebden, and in the final, John Higgins. You know, that's that's a good week's work. Yes, and he started off uh, beating a, a colleague of ours and a good friend, Neil Folds, who was a stalwart of the top 16 as well for many years and a former world number three. So to beat six players like that at such a tender age in what was, to that point for him, the most important tournament he'd ever played, I think told us what he was going to achieve in later years. He went on to reach... Uh, many other ranking finals. He got to 13 ranking semi-finals, five finals where he was beaten, and he won three ranking titles. And who knows? That's the great imponderable, isn't it? Who knows what the end career record would have been? It could have been anything. Mm. On 98, I mean, you know, he beat some great players to get to the final, but we've seen players reach a final, their first final, and then it's all too much for them. And of course, he was only like 19. He was a young lad at the time. He played John Higgins, who was about to become world champion. He'd taken over from Stephen Hendry, really, as the, as the game's best player. Higgins would have been a big favourite to win that. So to beat him in a final, that's a great achievement for someone who's not, not yet 20. And funnily enough, I always thought that match was very reminiscent of actually when John Higgins uh, broke through. He won the Grand Prix and then he won the International Open uh, some months later, beating Steve Davis in the final. And Hunter... I think followed Higgins' example, he took uh, to the big stage like a, like a duck to water. That first final must have been a, a really tough task for him, not just because the fact it was an enormous stage, but also, as you say, who he was playing. I thought Higgins would win that match, I've got no doubt. The problem is, and it's a nice problem to have, is when you win a tournament like that, you get, suddenly get a lot of money, and when you've never had money, you know, you can sort of go to your head a little bit, and I think... He would have well. He did admit that he went off the rails for a year or two, just sort of coping, I guess, with becoming a top player. But he met Brandon Parker or started working with Brandon, who got him on the straight and narrow. He became his manager, and I think he sort of sat down with him and said, "Look, you're young. You know, you can make a lot of money from this game. You can win a lot of tournaments from this game if you settle down and, and practice properly." Which he did. He never lost his sense of fun, but he did work hard. And of course, that takes us up to what he's known for, really, which is winning the Masters. So we go to 2001, the Masters at Wembley. Um, I remember, one thing I remember about that was we get these, we still get them to this day, these sort of sneering pieces from broadsheet columnists about snooker, how nobody's interested in snooker. And the Masters, they did a promotional day um, before the tournament with Paul because he was sort of seen as the the new star. 
And this guy, I remember, wrote this really sort of snotty piece about basically saying, well, no one knows who this guy is and why they're using him. Well, of course, they found out who he was by the end of the tournament. He won 10-9 uh, against Fergal O'Brien, 6-2 down at the interval, but came back in the evening to, to win at the Wembley Conference Centre, which was one of the most formidable tournaments, uh, sorry, tournament venues in the game. Yes, absolutely. And also, O'Brien at that time, a former British Open champion, was a very formidable opponent who was very cagey, good safety game and he was not only as you say well ahead after the first session but also 7-4 ahead but Hunter wasn't phased by the occasion or his opponent you know it was something about Wembley that brought the best out in him he was a man of razzmatazz they called him the the Beckham of snooker didn't they Hmm. and I think although the Crucible is the most important venue in snooker the most glamorous was definitely Wembley and Hunter and Wembley were a, a marriage made in heaven well, talking of marriage, of course, he wasn't married at that point, but this was this this not only cemented his place sort of in snooker as, as a big tournament winner, but for the tabloids as well, because famously he was asked afterwards when he'd come back from 6-2 down at the interval to win 10-9, what did you do between sessions? And, of course, he said famously he went to his hotel with Lindsay, his girlfriend, and put Plan B into operation. It was Now, one thing I'd say about that, because we were there, it was an entirely innocent remark. It wasn't something that he contrived to be, you know big news it ended up as a front page story in the daily star which maybe says more about them than <laughs> than him but it cemented his place as a sort of a fun time guy who is relatable to the general public a little bit like jimmy white absolutely you know the one thing when people pass away you hear sweetened versions of their character don't you what paul was was a fun loving individual i've seen him very drunk on <laughs> numerous occasions but he enjoyed life to the full and he was never he was never a a nasty drunk was he? Mm. He just loved life, and I think, as you say, he made that remark innocently. He was just so overcome and so happy with what he'd achieved that he was an open book. He wasn't trying to be cheeky. He wasn't trying to gain headlines. It was just one of those things. But I think it did snooker an immense favour because when you can make the front pages of the tabloids, that ninety-nine times out of a hundred is a good thing. Yeah, and he was also just being honest, you know. I mean, and, and when you break it down, the, the story was man has sex with his girlfriend. I mean, it's not the, the most earth-shattering things have happened, but it did kind of it made him, I think, to a lot of people human in a sport which, I guess, sometimes the players' personalities don't come through because it's obviously a really serious game, difficult game. They're playing for a lot of money, and you don't always, maybe, can't always relate to the players. But that made him relatable to a lot of people. It certainly put him on the map. But, of course, it's one thing to win it once. He came back again a year later, playing Mark Williams, who at that point was, again, you know, one of the absolute best in the world. And Mark was 5-0 up in the final. And, again, Paul came back to win 10-9. Well, that was a very different dynamic because for Fergal O'Brien to win the Masters, that for him would have been the holy grail. Mm. It would have made his life. Mm. For Mark Williams, it was just another tournament win, obviously. A lot of money involved and prestige, all that kind of stuff. But he was an established player by then. And for him to be 5-0 up and lose a big lead, subsequently, in later years, he's done that in the Shanghai Masters final, the Australian Masters final, UK Championship final. But then, 5-0 up, he was money in the bank, wasn't he? So for Hunter to come back against O'Brien and then do exactly the same thing against Williams, that really told me that he got his head screwed on and was one of the most extraordinary battlers in adversity that the game had ever seen. Yeah, it must have given him so much confidence, and he won a couple of ranking titles that year, 2002, and the Welsh, the British Opens, which both of which you would have commentated on. I mean, as a player, what, what were his uh, sort of strengths on the table? Well, I think he never really played to the scoreboard. Obviously, if he was 4-0 ahead and 
50 in front with 51 on, he might put a red under the cushion, that kind of thing. Of course he did. But when he was behind, he never used to get intimidated by the position he found himself in, and that really helped when it came to uh, fighting back. When he won the Welsh Open in 2002, it wasn't the snooker I remember. It was something he said when we were in the press conference. Um, and I think you were there, actually, Dave. We were just talking afterwards, after all the questions had finished, and maybe this was off the record. And I asked him, or maybe even you asked him where he was staying, and he said, mm. I'm in the Abyss. The Abyss, yeah. Now, this was the <laughs> Ibis down the road, yeah. which was a hotel he wasn't best pleased with. Now, I don't know to this day whether he was being funny or whether he mispronounced the, the name of the title or the name of the hotel, but either way, I thought it was quite a funny remark, and he just basically summed him up. He was just he was just so laid back. Yeah, well, I've stayed in that Ibis. I, I can tell you the rooms aren't that big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. He was laid back, and also... He was one of these people, and Mark Williams is a bit the same, who he could take defeat on the chin. And we come now to the most disappointing result, I guess, of his playing career, which was 2003 World Championship. Semi-finals, 15-9 up to Ken Doherty. Going out for final session, he's two more frames to reach the World, world Final. And Ken, a great match player, who was having a terrific run himself at that point, came back and won 17-16. And... You know, obviously a huge disappointment, but he was genuinely gracious afterwards. You, you know, you sometimes see people that they might, these days they, they'll tweet and say, "Oh, well done to so and so," and you know they're being insincere. But he was sincerely, obviously he was disappointed to lose, but he he kind of took it on the chin. He he was upset, but he he hugged Ken, he hugged uh, Ken's friend. You know, he 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 had time to congratulate him. He did something there. The vast majority of players. And something I could not possibly have done because the disappointment was crushing. We discovered afterwards that in the privacy of the dressing room, quite understandably, he'd broken down in tears. But in public, he was tremendous towards Ken and I think it was genuine. I've got no doubt about that. And also, in the press conference, after he'd collected himself, he was gracious, magnanimous, all the things you'd expect from him. But what a horrible defeat that was because, let's face it, it wasn't just the fact that Doherty went out and made succession of breaks and knocked everything in. Hunter had chances to win that match. There was lots of scrappy frames. I remember one yellow he missed from point-blank range, which was remarkable. It must have shook him to the core, because here was a player who built his career about winning matches on the most huge occasions from well behind, and suddenly he had what was effectively an almost certain winning lead. And then it was gone. It's interesting, though, because you mentioned about the venue, the, the Wembley Common Centre, big venue, maybe suiting a big personality, but the Crucible, it's almost like the walls close in there when things start to go wrong. It is small, obviously, it was one table, so not quite as tight as the two tables. Um, it was kind of... I always thought about that defeat, looking back, that it, it was something he would have learned from and, you know, would have got over, and the next time he was in that position, it wouldn't have happened. But, of course, as we know, sadly, he just didn't get the chance to, to recover and, and become world champion. Um... But I, I suppose also the way he behaved in defeat. Again, I think the parallel with Jimmy White is apt because Jimmy, no one has had more disappointment at the Crucible down the years than him. But he always managed to, to remain gracious as well in defeat. And not, it's not easy to do because it means everything. Well, I remember one occasion at the Crucible when Jimmy knocked uh, some balls off the table in angst and almost immediately issued a public apology. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. I mean, that was an extraordinary <laughs> thing, wasn't it, really? Privately, it must get them so deep in their soul when they lose matches they know they should win. Because, let's face it, Hunter should have won that match against Ken, and I think he, Ken would be the first person to admit that. Privately, yeah, very difficult to deal with, but publicly and, you know, in front of 
their fans in front of the media, they just refused to allow what was a, a terrible setback, not just in their careers but in their lives, to come through. Mm. Well, he didn't win the Masters in 2003. He turned up, uh, you might remember this, in a bandana for some reason, some sponsorship thing, and it just seemed like it was just putting him off. He couldn't, couldn't sort of do anything with it. Although I do remember that was the, that was the, the Golden Years uh, dinner. I think it was the last ever B&H Masters that, that they sponsored. And there was a dinner before it started. And I was on, we all got allocated a table with a player. I, I actually sat next to him. Terrific company, you know, just so sort of unaffected. You know, because sometimes you, you see players, not necessarily just in snooker, but all sport. It does kind of go to their head a little bit. They do act the star. He never did that. He was very down to earth. He was the same sort of lad that he'd always been. Just someone who was very successful and obviously got a few quid. But he was in a relationship with Lindsay, Lindsay by that point, And he seemed to have settled down as a person. He wasn't... He enjoyed himself still, but he wasn't sort of as wild as maybe he was when he was younger. That's right, yeah. He's he's one of those players who I think had got a great enthusiasm for the game, but he also got a great enthusiasm for what the scene around the game gave him. You know, the, yeah. the ability to interact with friends, have a great social life, see the world, and wherever he was, he was himself. And I think that was the most important thing. Ed Agola didn't like that, down at the local nightclub, in the practice room, wherever he used to uh, prepare for tournaments. He'd always be exactly the same. Now, some people give the impression of being every man when they're not. <laughs> I don't know whether they do it for effect or whatever, but he was a genuinely nice lad. And I think it just is proven by the fact that you never hear anyone, anyone, say a bad word about him. Obviously, now he's passed away, that would be in bad taste. But when he was here... You never heard anyone criticise him. And that's very rare in snooker because there's lots of, of backbiting. It's inevitable. We always have a go at people and say different things. But with him, I can't ever recall anyone saying anything bad about him. No, and we must talk as well about Matthew Stevens, of course, his, his best friend. And they always sort of you always bracket them together because they turned pro at the same time. They were managed by the same company for a while. And uh, I think they were good for one another because they, they could relate to what was happening. They were both top players. They could sort of have a chat about it. I, I get the feeling neither player, neither person would sort of want to go into that stuff too deeply. But they were always kind of there for one another. And it was obviously, we'll come on to Paul's sad death later, but Matthew had already, already lost his father, Morel, who was a very important influence. So to lose Paul as well was, was terrible for him. Well, Stevens, Masters champion, former UK champion. And I'm glad you talked about Morel there because I think Losing Paul and Morel, he might never want to articulate this, but it must have been horrible to digest. The two things combined, and maybe that's why, in the latter stages of his career, or even from the middle stages of his career to now, he's not achieved what he should achieve. It was a, a major blow, Paul, going for everyone concerned, and I think it just shook people up because he was so full of life, and he was so vibrant and so happy so successful and so popular and then all of a sudden he wasn't there well let's talk about his last masters win because in many ways that was the most impressive because he was playing ronnie o'sullivan who of course you know he, there's a man for the big occasion and ronnie was seven two up in that final and paul won ten nine and it was obviously the third ten nine in the in the masters final um to do it once is incredible to do it three times and for the third to be against ronnie is pretty incredible Ronnie O'Sullivan's a tremendous frontrunner, but he did have a little bit of scar tissue when it came to the Masters final because in 97 he'd been beaten by Steve Davis 10-8 from 8-4 up. But this match was something else because 
it wasn't someone clawing back. I actually did a little bit of research earlier on today because I wanted to reacquaint myself with how the match went. As you say, O'Sullivan went 6-1 and 7-2 ahead. Everyone assumed it was going to be an early coronation. But Hunter came back to win 10-9. But not just that, he made five century breaks in that match. Now, to do that in any Masters final against anyone, whether it be from the front, pulling away or from behind, that's a remarkable achievement. Yeah, and it kind of, I mean, it already, you know, having won it twice was being regarded as a sort of modern great, but that really rubber-stamped it, and I think rubber-stamped his association uh, with the Masters as well. A year later, I remember this very very clearly because of what subsequently happened, the Irish Masters, so we're now in 2005, and that was the first sign that there was something wrong. We did a press conference, he'd beaten somebody, he came in and we were just talking about the match, and he said, yeah, he said, I'm glad I've won because uh, I've had these pains in my stomach, and, you know, the doctors aren't sure what it is. And um, I remember afterwards, and I'm not proud to say this, but I remember afterwards me and some of the other journalists sort of thought it was a bit of a joke. We thought, oh, he's been on the beer, he's had too much to drink and all this sort of thing because he was so healthy. He looked so healthy, young, full of life, good-looking lad. You just think he can't possibly be seriously ill. And we never really thought about it again. Um, but then we went to the China Open and in Beijing, the one Ding ended up winning. And it was apparent then that there was something seriously wrong because he was still talking about the fact that he was had these pains. Yes, I think if my memory serves me correct, there was also some kind of tournament in Malta around that time mm. as well. And that was when we began to realise that this was serious. The whole episode made me feel guilty because, and it still does to this day, my thoughts were, oh, isn't it terrible for Paul? Terrible, terrible, terrible. But I've got to be honest, I never was before, but that made me a hypochondriac because, and I still am very much a hypochondriac, because, as I said before, he was a lad in his mid-twenties, full of life. Just a really good-looking individual who had got everything going for him. And randomly, randomly, through a sort of natural disaster, if you like, it was all taken away. And I kept thinking to myself, well, it can happen to him, it can happen to me. And they're horrible thoughts, very selfish. But I might as well articulate them here, because it's true. And I think a lot of other people must have been thinking exactly the same thing. Of all the players on the circuit that was going to happen to, he seemed to be the most unlikely, vibrant, happy, and then that struck him down. I remember someone telling me that he told his father when he was getting close to passing away that he'd been dealt a bad hand. Well, that's an understatement. He was dealt the worst hand imaginable. I think he knew, talking about a China event in 2005, I think he actually knew going there that he was ill, that he'd had got cancer and he would require treatment. But you'll remember this as well. He, he beat, Again, he'd beaten somebody and we were there, we requested him for the press conference and he didn't show up for about 20 minutes and we thought, has he gone? What's, what's happened? So we went down to, to find him, or someone went down to find him and he was in the arena signing autographs for anyone who wanted one, literally for half an hour, bearing in mind what he already knows about his potential future and the fact that he just made time for them all because it would have meant a lot to them you know they, they loved him as well I mean that says a lot about him absolutely yeah absolutely he was great for the game I mean that's one of the the, the great tragedies for snooker just take snooker away from Hunter at the moment that's one of the great tragedies for snooker because at a time when the game was in decline and we didn't realize really how much of a decline it was going to be until three or four years later at a time when the game was was in reverse, he was the one who could book the trend and really help the game regain its former status. 
Can you just imagine what it would be like now having him around with the razzmatazz mm. and the, the promotional skills of Barry Hearn, who no doubt would take full advantage of having such a, a great personality on board? So he went to the Crucible. By this time, the news was out. He'd announced that he got cancer. He played Michael Holt, a great friend of his from junior times, and uh, very difficult for Michael. I remember he said, you know, if 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 it, if, it, if it meant that he was cured, I'd lose, you know. But obviously, it's not like that. He had to get through the match. Very difficult. And then that was the end of the season. He came back the next season, and he had been having the treatment. But and you could see that he had been having the treatment. And suddenly, the sort of the youthful, good looks. You know, he looked completely different, didn't he? He looked ill because he was ill. I couldn't believe that he played for as long as he did. What I always remember about that period was when the WPBSA decided that they were going to uh, freeze his ranking. They gave a vote to the players, which was the correct thing to do, the democratic thing to do, and we're led to believe, well, we know that two players voted against it. Now, there's been all kinds of speculation over the years as to who the two players were. I'm not going to go into that. It was their prerogative. If there's a vote, you're allowed to vote either way. If it had been me, I would have voted for him to freeze his ranking for as long as it took, 20 years if necessary. Mm. It just seemed the obvious thing... And for two players to vote against that, that was the most extraordinary thing of the whole affair. Yeah, and that didn't actually happen until after, basically after he stopped playing. That was the season after that. So he, he's playing the 2005-06 season because he feels he has to. For, not, not just for the ranking, but obviously the, the prize money as well. I remember at the UK Championship, I think he actually won a match there. But it was late at night and he came in the press conference. There's basically just a few of us there. I think you probably were there. And under the lights of the press conference uh, table press conference room you could just see this was a guy who should not have been playing I think he beat Jamie Burnett mm. if my memory serves me correct and what people don't realise is that obviously the illness was taking a massive toll of course it was but it wasn't just the illness at that point it was the drugs he was on to try yeah. and combat the illness and one of the horrible side effects they were giving him pain in his hands now, if you're a snooker player, you need your hands like, uh, you know, nothing else. And he, when he was gripping the cue, he was experiencing a lot of discomfort. So to win a match against a player of Jamie Burnett's calibre, a former UK junior champion who's made a one four eight break, I mean, to win a match in the UK championship under those circumstances, there's an argument, you know, to say that was his greatest ever achievement. Mm. Well, he battled on and, and eventually... The 2006 World Championship would prove to be his last tournament. He'd played Neil Robertson in the first round, and you could, as you say, that the pain in his hands, he, he couldn't play properly. He did his best. Again, it was very difficult, I'm sure, for Neil. And then, so we had a, another press conference, and it's always, you're always at the cruise, but it's always kind of, you know, see you next season, isn't it? It's like, see you in a few months, lads, and all that. But it, there, was, there was just a general feeling that this was not going to be a happy ending. Yeah, you're right. Back then it was distinct seasons. We used to finish at the Crucible early May, probably start, maybe have one event in August, but generally in September. And time was running out and you just knew it. He knew it, although he never actually said so. And I think we went back into the into the press room and at the Crucible, well, at every tournament, we like a moan, don't we? Yes, the media. We well, you know, we we sort of perfect candidates for grumpy old men, even though <laughs> Some of us aren't old men, I mean I am, but you aren't. But on that occasion, 
I think it just put everything into perspective. Okay, we might be here for 17 days working all hours God sends. But at the end of it, you know, we're going to go home, have a nice summer, got a nice few quid in our pockets, no real problems in life. And then you think, well, hold on a minute. What's the future for him? We've got a, a future. He doesn't know whether he's got one. He thinks he might not. How do you cope with that psychologically? How do you cope? And to this day, I still don't know. No, and it's worth mentioning his family as well. He also had to cope with his, his wife, Lindsay. Of course, they had a daughter, young daughter. Um, and his parents, I mean, Alan was always, uh, still comes to snooker now, but was one of the dads who came proudly to watch their sons. So they had to, to cope with it as well. He passed away in October 2006, so 10 years ago now. Um, very, very sad time for the sport. There was a huge turnout at his funeral. Virtually every player went. But it was just, um, I think there was a sense of disbelief, actually. Because as you say, he was only 27. But it's not just that. He was a 27-year-old who seemed to have enjoyed every day of his life. He seemed to have loved his life. Absolutely. People said, you know, the old platitudes, oh, well, you know, he crammed in a, a full life to his 27 years. He didn't. Nobody can. It would have been great to see him live to be 97. I remember you rang me, I think, and told me that he'd passed away. I was down in London at a TV studio. I was about to record a, a golf programme. And my head was just in a turmoil. Radio 5 then subsequently rang me, and I had to do a two-way piece uh, with one of their programmes. And I was really concerned that I was going to crack up and be too emotional to do it. And I wasn't in the slightest, actually. Um, but afterwards, God, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah, and I think that's the, the case for everybody. And sort of, obviously, torments have to go on. We went to, I think it was Aberdeen, there was the next event, the Grand Prix, and obviously that's all anyone was really talking about. Um, you, you've got to sort of try and move on, but it's very difficult for his close friends like Matthew, who you mentioned, and many others as well, to just sort of get on with playing. But then, of course, the question was, OK, well, how do we honour him? Uh, the Germans, who we know we love snooker, that their German Open tournament, they were quick off the mark. They renamed their event the Portland Classic, which, of course, now is a full-ranking event, which is fantastic that his name carries that. The most obvious thing it seemed to do was to not rename the Masters itself, but the Masters Trophy, which he'd won three times, to name that in his honour. But for some reason, the then WPSA board, which have changed now, they didn't want to do it. Well, when you talk about past WPBSA administrations the word disgrace comes up quite often but this was an unfathomable disgrace many of the things they did which I didn't agree with I could actually understand why they'd done them there was some logical reason even though it wasn't the correct reason but why not honour Paul with that trophy presentation in his name why not there was absolutely no reason to go against well, the ideas of the press, wasn't it, originally? I remember Pete Ferguson from the Daily Mail suggesting it, and I thought it was an absolutely sensible thing to do. And we all assumed, I think, that it was just going to be a matter of time before the decision was made, and the decision was never made. Just ridiculous, horrible, and completely without logic. Yeah, because it was an opportunity every year at the Masters to remember it. You know, at the end, it's the Paul Hunter Trophy. You're not naming the tournament after him, it's just the trophy... And it's a little reminder for everybody of his contribution. Of course, what's happened now is, and it's a decade on, but Barry Hearn, the World Snooker Chairman, has said that actually now they are going to name the trophy after him. So belatedly it's going to happen, but it surely should have happened at the time. Well, at the time there was the great mantra, wasn't it? Oh, you know, the association, this is an association of players, we do what the players <laughs> want. Well, I can tell you, unanimously, the players wanted that trophy. 
the silverware named after Paul Hunter. So why wasn't it? It's something that was completely unfathomable. It's a mystery then, it's a mystery now. Mm. One sort of part of the legacy, though, is the Paul Hunter Foundation, which was set up in his name, and they do a lot of good work for disadvantaged young people in, in the UK. They get them in playing snooker, get them out of trouble, you know, off the streets, and doing something that, you know, as we know, you can build a, a great career from. So... It, it's good that he's remembered. I mentioned the Paul Hunter Classic as well, now this trophy and, and the foundation, because it's important that we do recognise his contribution to the sport, not least because, as you said, when he was at the top, the game actually was in a bit of trouble and it was people like him and Ronnie who were keeping it alive. Absolutely, absolutely. Another thing, of course, that uh, was uh, named in his honour was the Paul Hunter Scholarship. Yep. And I remember the very first unveiling of the inaugural Paul Hunter Scholar. It was Daniel Wells, and that uh, came to my mind... We're recording this during the European Masters in Bucharest in Romania, and of course Wells played Ronnie O'Sullivan uh, in this event, and uh, the Paul Hunter Scholarship came to my mind then. But also, as you say, the Paul Hunter Classic. What a great tournament that is to remember him by, because it's always good crowds, it's always a friendly, convivial atmosphere, which is just what he liked. Mm. And for Mark Selby to be a multiple winner, that could not be more appropriate, because Selby... Not quite the, the fun-loving individual of Hunter. A little bit more dedicated, a little bit more serious. But nevertheless, a lovely guy, approachable, ambassadorial, great for the game. The fact that he's won it on more than one occasion, I think, is just entirely fitting. Well, as we wrap up, it's hard to sort of say where does he rank in the Pantheon because his career was unfinished. It, was, it finished at 27. We'll never know. I mean, he was good enough to be world champion. We'll never know how many other tournaments he would have won but he'd achieved a hell of a lot by the time he passed away. Absolutely. I think the only thing you can do is say what he did. Mm. We can't speculate on what he might have done. When he passed away, there was all these platitudes about, oh, guaranteed former world future world champion. We don't know that because it's so difficult to win the world championship. Until you do, you can never say that for sure. He'd certainly got the capabilities to win it, and I personally think he probably would have won it, but we can't say it for certain. What we can say is that what he achieved, winning those three Masters in four years, winning three world-ranking events as well, and becoming a, a stalwart inside the top 16, I would certainly say he's definitely in the top 16 players of all time. Mm. And maybe, maybe a possible candidate for top 10. Yes, and we remember not just the player, but the man as well. I remember him, he was always seemed to be smiling. He was always very easy to deal with after that initial interview that I said about the star, he became at ease with himself as a top player, clearly loved snooker, loved being part of it. You know, he came from working class background as a lot of these guys do. Life could have been very different had he not discovered snooker. You don't know, you know, where you're gonna end up, but he seemed to be grateful to the sport. He liked being part of it. He liked being part of it. As I say, he liked the whole package. Mentioning no names here, there are lots of players on the snooker circuit at the moment who love the game but hate the travelling. Mm. Now, Hunter never encountered the travelling that these guys have to endure because the circuit now is much more busy than it was then. But he really embraced that. He embraced the social side of the game. But I think most of all, he just loved knocking in balls. Mm. He was an uncomplicated individual, and I mean that in the nicest possible way. And for him, although snooker was his profession, it was never a job. That's right. Well, it's ten years on. It's a very difficult time, I'm sure, for his family and for a lot of his friends in the snooker world. I think my suggestion would be raise a drink to him because I think Paul would, would have appreciated that because he did love his life. He loved being a snooker player and he did enjoy every moment. 
and he's very sadly missed by everyone in the sport, including, of course, a lot of snooker fans as well. But he made a very important contribution, and we're grateful for that. Thank you very much, Phil, for joining me. Yeah, well, if his mom and his dad and Lindsay and his daughter are listening to this, I hope that uh, you know you're not uh, too upset by the the ten year anniversary. And thanks to Barry Hearn for naming that trophy after Paul because it's richly deserved. Yeah, he deserves to be remembered, and hopefully we've done our bit here. Thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.